Charles Spurgeon said that a time will come when instead of having a shepherd feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. We are committed to expository preaching here. That's new for some of you. But we believe it's the healthiest practice for your soul. And in time, we believe you will come to that conclusion as well. Today, I will not break up the narrative. I will walk through the 49 verses. I'll walk through the story. And then I'll bring it home with some applications once we're finished. The great king Nebuchadnezzar, he thrashes in his bed. The sheets twisted around his limbs, his heart pumping against his chest. He desperately tries to wake up, screaming for help, yet no sounds are coming out. He has had that frightening dream again, waking up covered in sweat and out of breath. It was more than a dream because he felt like he might die from the pain in his brain. It was a nightmare. The nightmare comes back night after night. In the nightmare, the great and powerful king becomes a scared spectator to a towering colossal beast. This monster is worse than anything in a horror film. Scarier than Michael Myers, Jason, Freddy Krueger, or Hannibal Lecter. This gigantic mutant freak always looks the same. It has a head of glowing gold, chest and arms of solid silver, midsection of brazen bronze, legs of immovable iron, and feet of iron and clay mixture. While Nebuchadnezzar stands trembling before the horrid beast, over to the side is a mountain. And a stone is cut out of the mountain, but not cut out by human hands. This comparatively small stone suddenly strikes the gigantic beast at its feet, and the beast begins to tumble. Then the iron legs, the bronze midsection, the silver arms, and the gold head are crushed to pieces. They become like scraps of old newspapers in a vacant lot on a dry summer day, blown every which way by the wind, scattered to oblivion. Nebuchadnezzar can't find a trace of any of them anymore. See, this is where you think the nightmare turns out to be pleasant, but that little stone begins to grow and grow. And grow and grow. It keeps pushing Nebuchadnezzar back. Back out of his bed. Back out of his mansion. Back out of the royal city. Back out of Babylon. Back out of the east. He's losing his footing. He, he keeps getting pushed back. The stone eventually grows and engulfs the entire earth. The stone turns out to be more terrifying than the cruel beast. This leaves Nebuchadnezzar in the fetal position. The most powerful man on earth scared senseless by a reoccurring nightmare. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar gets more ink than any other pagan king in history. We are three years into his reign. Verse 1 says it's his second year, but we know the ancient method of calculating that they did not count the year of accession. So it's his, his second year is actually his third year. Why would a king who's on top of the world be having nightmares? We know from other historical sources outside of Scripture that his expansionist policy met with some fierce resistance during the early years of his reign. 
And the anxieties of daylight can become the monsters of the darkness. All day the king pondered the meaning of this nightmare. In the ancient world, dreams were significant. They were often viewed as predictions of future events. In Babylon, people believed that the, that the gods often spoke through dreams. It's how the gods broke through the barrier to the physical world. And this dream must be important because it keeps coming back night after night after night. I wonder what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. Maybe he thought the dream pointed to an assassination plot somewhere out there in the future for him. Maybe he thought the freak beast represented Egypt and he needed to uncode this stone so he could finally level the enemy. What are the gods trying to tell him? Well, that's exactly what he intends to find out, so he gathers the brain trust, the fortune tellers, the futurists, and the palmists, and the tea leaf readers, and the crystal gazers, and the horoscope writers, the occult, the stargazers, the enchanters, those who speak to the dead. They arrive to the king's throne room, standing at attention before his majesty. And the king says to the gathered wise men, I keep having the same nightmare. I guess I shouldn't call it a nightmare because it stays with me during the day. It's not only a nightmare, it's a daymare. The Chaldeans, you see, they kept record of all dreams. My wife and I were recently in an attorney's office closing on a property. And I loved walking into that attorney's office and, and seeing floor-to-ceiling books. The libraries of how certain laws have been ruled on throughout history. See, the Chaldeans did something similar. They had floor-to-ceiling books charting if a person had a certain dream and, and how that person's life turned out. And so they concluded if a guy had this dream and his, and his life went like this, then this dream must mean your life's going to go like this. So this would be an easy day for the dream interpreters. Notice verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. What's interesting is that the king refused to tell the dream. Now, a few scholars believe that the king forgot the dream. I don't see that, and neither do the majority of theologians. He remembers the dream, but his mistrust of the wise men is profound. If he tells them the dream, they can come up with any interpretation. So how's the king to know that it is the correct interpretation? So he says, if, if you're all-knowing as you claim to be and as wise as people think you are, you will tell me the exact nightmare and the interpretation. The king goes on to use a, a stick and carrot approach. First, the carrot. He said, if you tell me the dream, I'll, I'll gift you with gold bars, silver jewelry, bronze plates and cups, iron weapons, and as many ceramics as you please to take. I'll parade you through the streets on my horse, robe you in my attire, and have the people shout as you pass by. Just simply tell me the dream. Now that's a, that's a tasty carrot. Then the stick. He said, if you do not tell me both the dream and the interpretation, I'll rip you limb from limb and scatter your body parts throughout the city. He goes as far as to say in verse 5, I'll make your house ruins. The word ruins. This is more than a garbage dump. Nebuchadnezzar was known for killing an enemy, smashing his house, and then building a public outhouse where the house once stood. It's quite a stick. The wise men respond, 
the key. Without the dream, we cannot check the dream manuals to see what the dream means. The king reiterates a second time, but now he, he, takes the, he takes back the carrot and he only mentions the stick. So he accuses them of, of stall tactics and conspiracy. Don't blow smoke in my eyes. Tell me the dream or die. And they respond in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing. In effect, they were saying, You were asking us to tell you what the gods alone can tell you. And we are men, not gods. We took our undergrad and grad in dream interpretation and we've never heard anyone anywhere that can do what you ask. No king, great or small, has ever demanded anything like this from any magician, enchanter, or fortune teller. See what they're doing? In, in other words, they're saying, do you want to rank with the greats, King Nebuchadnezzar? Because none of the greats did this. Well, this made Nebuchadnezzar fly into a violent, angry rage. He, he ran an absolute monarch. You don't speak to the king this way in an absolute monarch and, and live. You don't walk away. You're carried away. So in line with the king's normal pattern of overreaction, he ordered the whole company of Babylonian wise men to be killed. It's a case of, it's a case of overkill, literally. Verse 13. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Remember, Daniel and his three friends have just graduated from their three-year indoctrination program at the Royal University of Babylon in chapter 1. They are still apprentice-level wise men. They were not with the others who failed at Nebuchadnezzar's request. However, it, it doesn't matter. Guilt by association condemns them as well. Arioch, the captain of the king's execution squad, arrives at Daniel's door, and in one hand he held a sword, and in another hand he held the execution for Daniel. Verse 15, Daniel declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Let's hit the pause button here. Notice how he wisely and respectfully raises the question. Now let's hit the play button. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel shows great dignity and decorum and is somehow able to make the, the matter known to the king himself. This very thing Nebuchadnezzar said no to in verse 8, more time, he now says yes to in verse 16. The Chaldeans said, King, we need more time. He said, no, chop them up. Daniel says, King, I need more time. The king says, not a problem. It seems like God is orchestrating this whole event. After instigating a prayer meeting among his friends... Notice what happens in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And this is interesting. Notice the phrase, the mystery was revealed. This is the divine passive in the original. Daniel didn't figure it out. It was given to him. And it's an important polemic argument against the pantheon of Babylonian gods. Not by horoscopes or seances or star reading, but the enlightenment comes from the God of heaven. Daniel did not immediately rush off to Nebuchadnezzar with the answer, even with his life hanging in the balance. 
from verse 20 to 23, he's singing. Daniel praises God. Daniel praises God's omnipotence. He's all-powerful. His omniscience. He knows all things past, present, and future. And, and I, I, love, I love this line in the song, verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. What a comfort for Israel in exile to know that God knows what is in the darkness. God not only knows, but he has the power to do something about it. And that gives hope for Israel's future. Daniel goes on to thank God for answering his prayer. Finally, Daniel gets word to the captain of the king's execution band and says, It's time. Now it's time. Bring me to the king. And watch this loser bring him to the king. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. See what he's doing? He's taking credit for locating the man who can solve the king's problems. It's interesting. That would have bothered me. It doesn't seem to bother Daniel. He's going to make sure credit is laid at the feet of the one who deserves it. So the king speaks to Daniel. Do you know the dream and the interpretation? And then notice verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. In other words, king, you have a mystery, and I know a God who solves mysteries. Daniel does not take credit like Arioch had done. He says, I am, I am not smarter, wiser, or more brilliant than others. This is, this is all God's doing. And it seems like the longer Daniel spoke the bigger he became. There was a New England Puritan pastor named Thomas Hooker who was known for being very plain spoken, even with famous people in the audience. And it was said by one of his contemporaries that Thomas, when he preaches, seems to grow in size until you would have thought he could have picked up a king and put him in his pocket. Daniel with God's message is like the a little foam sea creature and a dissolving pill. He's expanding. He's growing so large and bold, he's putting the king in his pocket. He tells Nebuchadnezzar, there's only one God who reveals the future because there's only one God who knows the future. And then it really gets interesting in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was... Frightening. Its appearance was frightening. Let's spend some time unpacking this beast. I brought a chart along. At the end of verse 37, Daniel says, You, O king, are the head of gold. Notice this image has a head of gold. It has chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, then legs of iron, then feet partly of iron and clay, and then, and then you have the whole stone situation as well. So then verse 37, Daniel says, King, you're the head of gold. And this really makes sense because Babylon was the gold headquarters of the world. Nebuchadnezzar loved gold. He had a gold throne, gold-laced robes, gold lions all around his mansion. He had a little fetish with lions. You may want to, to write in your chart beside the head of gold, Simply Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. 
Talk about becoming your worst nightmare. The scariest part of this monster freak was the head, and it was Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now notice how Daniel reveals that the beast represents, this is very important for you to understand, a sequence of kingdoms. Notice verse 39. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, that's silver, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, verse 40, and there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. Notice the four kingdoms. Now some, king, some scholars have assigned each of these sections to a world empire. They say the gold is Babylon, which I agree. Then they say silver is the Medes and the Persians, the bronze is Greek, and the iron is the Romans. Many conservative scholars hold to this. I feel no need to assign anything that isn't clearly assigned by God. The only one that God made clear was the head of gold, and that is Nebuchadnezzar. It's Babylon. Now, some pastors profundicate about the metals and how they decrease in value. Gold is more valuable than silver. Silver is more valuable than bronze. Bronze is more valuable than iron. And they, they go on in their eloquent speech and talk how they decrease in weight, that gold is heavier than silver and silver heavier than bronze and bronze heavier than iron. And then they get to the bottom of the statue where the feet is located and the text says that the, there were ten toes. And some even identify ten different people that the ten toes on this beast represent. And I just want to stress why I am not stressing that. Some people have a mentality for the marginal. They're fascinated by the gaps, spending their evenings debating in the minutiae, endless speculations. And I struggle with people who want to make black or white what God has left gray. And God has just left the rest of this gray. You don't know what the toe represents because God didn't tell you. I mean, have you ever considered that they're just feet? <laughs> that the, the, the monster needed to balance himself, so God gave him ten toes. See, I, I do not see these people deeply cherishing the great central doctrines of the gospel. The holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, and the helplessness of man. They always seem to be taking you down a side road with a new article or a new book or a new speculation. Always fascinated by the gaps. Friends, don't be fascinated by the gaps. Be fascinated by the gospel. In an age of novelty, let's keep the plain things the main things. And the main things the plain things. I feel no need to dabble in that. Because I don't think it was the author's intent. Now, the author did reveal that each section speaks of a certain world kingdom. Rich, powerful, worldwide kingdom. We know that Babylon is the first. Who, who's the third? Who's the fourth? It could be Greece and Rome. We don't know. We do know that there is a stone, and that stone will strike the image at the feet, and the image will fall and be blown away like feathers in the wind. After revealing the dream and the interpretation, notice what Nebuchadnezzar does in verse 46. It's a little mind-blowing. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now, that's a strong statement. Many in our churches in the States would permit this man into church membership right away. I mean, listen to what he says. 
Truly, your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. The invitation was given. Nebuchadnezzar comes down the aisle. Tears are streaming. Not only would most grant him membership, they would have him give a testimony next week. The king got saved. The king must give a testimony. But you must understand, this is temporary. He's moved by emotion, not by the holiness of God. He's moved by the revelation of his mystery, not by the revelation of God's mystery. He's delivered from his nightmare, but not delivered from his sins. This is a confession, not a conversion. And we know from the very next chapter that he does one of the most brazen, anti-God things you could possibly do. Build a statue to yourself. And kindly, I want to say, some of you have done the same thing. You said some words similar to this at one time, and you wrote in your Bible, on this date I was saved. And you left that day and began building statues to yourself. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely religious man. He just simply views God like a good luck charm now. And he puts Yahweh on the shelf with his other gods. <laughs> Yahweh has been promoted to the varsity team. Nebuchadnezzar is charmed, but not changed. And friends, God is not here to charm you, but to control you. He doesn't reason with you. He rescues you. Taking a step back, I'm not sure that the dream really posed an immediate threat in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. I don't think it, scholars are divided on this, I don't think it does. It doesn't say how long his kingdom will last. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar could be thinking, look, I'll reign for another hundred years and then die and then the kingdom will be taken over by another kingdom. I don't care. I'm dead. But while I'm alive, my kingdom's going to be ahead of gold. And a little side note, I, I don't know that you would want to wear a WWDD bracelet here. What would Daniel do? Because Daniel does something odd. Daniel allowed the king to worship him and even bring offerings to him. And this behavior contrasts sharply with Paul and Barnabas in Lystra. You may remember after healing a lame man, the townspeople treated them as gods, called them Zeus and Hermes, spelled Hermes. And the apostles reacted quickly, tearing their clothes and urgently shouting, We too are only men. I don't see that with Daniel. Now, could Daniel have been thinking of the prophecies of Isaiah where God promised, King shall bow down to you and then you will know that I am the Lord? <coughs> Possibly. Possibly. But life improved dramatically for Daniel. Notice verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And, you may want to underline this, chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Here's what that means. Daniel becomes the chief Bible teacher in the land. Chief Bi he is teaching all the wise men. Now, last week I gave you nine applications to close out the exposition. And that was, that was look, friends, that was far too many. So I won't do that to you again. But this week I'll give you six timeless truths. I dropped three. And um, I think you should praise me for that. Timeless truth number one. Kingdoms are given to kings. Kingdoms are given to kings. 
I don't know if you caught it or not, but when Daniel was speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37, he said, You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them. You didn't come king. You didn't become king by your own power or ingenuity. It's a gift of God. The central theme of the book of Daniel is God's sovereignty over history and empires, setting up and removing kings as he pleases. God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. God raised up his kingdom to be a chastening agent. And when the chastening work was done, they passed out of existence. Babylon stood as the world leader for 70 years. Some of you are, are 71 years old. You, you've lived longer than Babylon. Now Nebuchadnezzar reigned 43 years, but Babylon stood for, for 70 years. The destruction of this kingdom and all other kingdoms are not an accident in history. Human history is under the control of God and has a purpose to which it will fulfill. And no matter how powerful you think you are, you are, are a spectator watching what God is doing. That's actually the point of the dream. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're the most powerful man on earth, but you sit as a spectator looking on as God calls the shots. This whole dream is precisely calculated to show Nebuchadnezzar's smallness. I want you to view every news story in light of this. Every political campaign in light of this. I want to remove your fuel for worry and your fuel for frustration. And I want to give you fuel for worship. This book gives distinctively a God-centered view of history and politics. That's timeless truth number one. Timeless truth number two. Christ will destroy every world kingdom. How was this scary beast eventually destroyed in the dream? Did he just trip and fall? Did Humpty Dumpty fall off the wall and nobody could put him back together again? No. no. That's not what happened. A stone came and destroyed this mutant beast. Verse 45. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human... Let's all say the next word together on the count of three. One, two, three. Hand. Notice that the, that the statue is, is of a human design and making. It's made of precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, and iron. It is a statue of a human made by human hands. But this stone was cut out by no human hand. It was the divine stone. According to the New Testament, Jesus' conception, same wordage, not by human hands, but by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.20. Jesus saw himself as the stone. Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, 1 Peter 2, all tell us the stone is Christ. And God uses the rock and stone imagery richly in multifaceted ways throughout the Bible. In, in one particular place, in 1 Peter, he's actually quoting himself in Psalm 18, 118, and he said, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him 
will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He goes on to say that the stone will break to pieces whatever it touches. What happened to the image after the stone struck it? It was blown away. And, and I quote, like the chaff the wind carried away. And that is an echo. That's, I don't know if you can hear it. That's, that's an echo of Psalm 1-4. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Christ is the stone who will destroy all evil empires and he will do it so decisively you will not be able to find a crumb of gold, silver, bronze, or iron. Now, whether you're living in the head of gold or the legs of iron or the, or the feet of clay, whether your present earthly kingdom is an actively hostile dictatorship like Babylon or a relatively benevolent democracy like in the States, one day the glory and power of all kingdoms will come to an end. America will get the stone just like everyone else. You say, no, 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 Kyle. Not, not America. We are a Christian nation. Please. 60 million babies killed. If God does not judge America, he will have to apologize to Babylon. There is no Christian nation. You, you know that, right? That's what this passage is teaching us. Now, one day there will be a Christian nation when Jesus returns and sets up the kingdom of God. That will be a Christian nation. But there are no Christian nations now. There, there may be morally good nations and nations with laws written by Christians or nations with a lot of Christians in it, but there is no Christian nation. So what, what hope do we have? Well, we have the hope from the timeless truth number three. God will set up a new kingdom. All the kingdoms of the world will come to an end and will be replaced by the kingdom of God, which will never pass away. Notice verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. The, the message is clear that even in the midst of the rise and fall of world empires and the reigns of good and bad rulers and in good times and in bad times, the kingdom of God will be established. In the beginning, God established a kingdom on earth, Genesis 1 and 2. Because of the fall of man, Genesis 3, people began to build their own autonomous kingdoms on earth. Cain built a city, Genesis 4. Later, people built Babel, Genesis 11. Genesis 11, you'll have seven nations or seven kingdoms. But God determined to restore his kingdom. So in Genesis 12, he forms a new nation, the 71st nation, Israel. And Abraham will leave his country of Babylonia and head for the promised land. And that's a long and winding road for the nation. It will lead from Babylonia, and as we see in the text, back into Babylon... But God protects his people Israel because he's sending a Messiah through them. He's sending a stone through them. And, and let's just recall for a moment when the angel Gabriel announces Jesus' birth to Mary. The angel said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, this is a baby, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Some 30 years later Jesus begins his ministry and he proclaims the good news of God and he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand. If, if you were to summarize the message of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like what was the one thing he preached all the time? The kingdom of God. That was his main message. The kingdom of God. He came bringing a kingdom of God message. But the kingdom of God does not fully come during Jesus' lifetime. What kingdom is ruling then? Rome. The Roman kingdom is in charge. And Jesus clearly stated that my kingdom is not of this world. Something that his closest followers didn't even understand. Something that the Romans wanted to make sure all of his followers understood clearly. In fact, when the Roman soldiers crucified Jesus, it looks like the kingdom of God has failed. That's what the followers believed. Three days later, his blood starts pumping, his chest starts expanding, his body starts moving, and he walks out of the tomb. And he explains to his followers that the kingdom of God will run parallel and even unnoticed by the great leaders of history. And when he comes again a second time, not to lie in a manger, but he will come to set up a new kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. And to be sure, the kingdom starts out small. As Jesus pointed out in the parable of the mustard seed, but this kingdom will eventually engulf the whole earth. And, and by the way, no more tears in that kingdom. No more injustice in that kingdom. No more pain. No more tornadoes. No more pulling 17-month-old children from the rubble. No. No more night or nightmares. Only light. Not from the S-U-N, but light from the S-O-N. See, his nightmare, Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare, is our hope. Christ is coming to bring us into his kingdom. Now a word to those of you who are non-Christians. Maybe you know you're not a Christian. You've been actively rejecting the message of Christ. And some of you, you you've never heard a, a, a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And So this is hitting you hard for the first time. But I just want to speak to you for a moment. Perhaps today. Could be the day of your salvation. Repent of your sin, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Friend, be redeemed by this Christ, or be destroyed by this Christ. You must bow to me. Timeless truth number four. While living in earthly kingdoms, build your life on the stone. Build your life on the stone. Jesus taught a crowd in Matthew chapter 7, and you've, you've probably heard this in movies or songs, it's super, super popular, it originated in the Bible. He said, you can be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, and when the rain fell and the, and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Or you could be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great, great was the fall of it. So you either build your life on the words of Christ or you build your life on sinking sand. Everything not built on a solid foundation will crumble. That is what this 
chapter teaches us. That's what this nightmare teaches us. Everything not built on a solid foundation will crumble. God says, if you build your life on anything but me, you'll be haunted. If you build your life on popularity, the polls will terrify you. If you build your life on money, the market will terrify you. If you build your life on looks, the mirror will terrify you. There is coming a day when all of our little triumphs and glories will lie in the dust and we will stand before the great creator to give an account. And that's why it's vital that you build your marriage on this Christ. That you pray together. That you read the word to your children. That you confess sins regularly in the home. Make sure your job is built on a solid foundation. That it's built on Christ, your weekend activities, your, your kids' sports schedule, your Netflix and Hulu, your pursuits, whether it's that job or that city. If you walk away today and begin building your kingdom, making a name for yourself, then you haven't listened to anything I've said. Nothing. Now there's a word here for the hurting. And some of you are deeply hurt. Deeply hurt. Things I couldn't even imagine facing. Here would be my word to you. You may not know what the future holds. But you absolutely know who holds the future. And since this chapter is teaching us that the whole world is in God's hand. That means your world is in God's hand. And this book calls you first not to give up. Daniel and his people were, they received this dream and you think like, oh, everything's glorious for Daniel now. No, 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 it wasn't. He knew where he was. He was with Babylon. He didn't know who the next kingdom would be, but he knew another one was coming and then another one was coming and then another. There was no light at the end of the tunnel for Daniel. Daniel and his people were still POWs. They were still fighting for their lives. They were still crying themselves to sleep at night. They were still lonely away from home. Yet God displayed his long-range plans to Daniel. Daniel did not know all that would happen in his immediate situation, but God assured him that all things were working toward a grand triumph. And friends, we have to learn to praise God for the good we see despite the grace not yet revealed. Don't lose sight of God's end game in the midst of a broken marriage or a broken relationship. Don't lose sight of God's end game in the midst of a broken heart or a broken spirit. There's a crazy paradox in the text. The same stone that destroys also heals. The stone that breaks also men's. Jesus is the only king who doesn't have feet of clay. Jesus is the only one who is golden from top to bottom. Jesus is the only one who can take your brokenness and your hurt and make it right. Timeless truth number five. Christ will build his everlasting kingdom with people from temporary kingdoms. Christ will build his kingdom with people from the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the midsection of brass, the legs of iron, the feet of, of clay. 
And there's a really interesting nugget in the book here. In this chapter, beginning in verse 4, the book leaves the Hebrew language and it progresses with a cousin language, Aramaic. And it will stay Aramaic until chapter 8, verse 1. So it begins Hebrew, then it takes a pause and goes to Aramaic, then it goes to Hebrew again. And this has puzzled many scholars, but most agree that it's emphasizing God's missional impulse. God wants the outsider nations to come into his kingdom. There's a, there's a Messiah psalm, psalm, psalm 2. It's where God the Father speaks to God the Son. It's powerful, Psalm 2. God the Father speaks to God the Son. I want, I want you, to, you to just listen in to what God the Father says to God the Son. He says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, that begins to be fulfilled in the Old Testament, here in Psalm 2 and, and Daniel 2, but it extends also in the book of Acts. What happens in the book of Acts is, is the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The message of the kingdom is spreading all over the whole earth. What does that sound like? It sounds like the stone. And this is why we go to unreached people groups. This is why we pray for unreached people groups. This is why we give you a specific unreached people group in your worship guide every single week so that we can bombard heaven that these people who have never heard the name of Christ would bow to the name of Christ. That the Father would receive the nations as his heritage. Timeless truth number six. Wise men find the king and his kingdom. Daniel over and over in this chapter is called a wise man. A wise man. Have we heard those words before? A wise man. We have. Daniel is the prequel. At the birth of Christ, wise men came. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding these wise men in Matthew 2, but in the original language, the, the word there in, in the Greek is magi. So the magi or wise men in Matthew 2, they saw an unusual occurrence in the sky. Now the Bible never tells us there were three wise men. The tradition came from the gifts, the three gifts that were brought to Jesus. But the magi didn't travel in, in triplets. Early church history said there were 12. We know that it was enough to trouble the entire city of Jerusalem. So it's probably a huge group of wise men. And, and it could have been three dozen or even a hundred magi arriving in splendor. These men came from the distant east and embarked on a long and treacherous journey to the west that lasted about a year or two. So when Christ was one or two, I'm sorry I'm ruining your manger scenes right now. The wise man didn't come to, he was like two. Historians have selected a number of places in the east where they could have originated, but most can conclude it was Persia and Babylon. This rocks me. Daniel trained the Magi who would train the Magi who would train the Magi who would find Jesus. The Magi in Daniel speak of the stone. The Magi in Matthew see the stone. What the Magi in Daniel saw by faith, the Magi in Matthew experienced by sight. God commandeers constellations to bring wise men to Jesus. God commandeers nightmares to bring wise men to Jesus. He controls the heavens and he manipulates dreams. There is not a thing in the entire universe over which God who is sovereign does not have complete control. 
Kings come and go. But the sovereign never dies. Magi come and go. But the sovereign never drops one who comes to him by faith. God made it possible for wise men and women and foolish men and women to enter into his kingdom. So how do I enter this kingdom? You enter by the stone. And let me just tell you what you'll find out once you get in. The kingdom does not consist of deserving men and women, but blood-washed, redeemed men and women. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.